Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Garrett Mott, trial lawyer in real estate and construction litigator at Hennig Law. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hugh. Great to be here. So I'd love to understand what the trial law part of what you do constitutes. Everybody's seen all sorts of dramatizations on TV, whether it's Law and Order or whatever, but I have a feeling it's both more mundane and sometimes more interesting than that. What, what do you do? Yeah, it does have a little bit of both of that. First, most of what we do, unlike how it's portrayed on the shows, is writing. Most of what we do is written applications to the court and motions. And then on the second part, what we actually do, it's a long process. We get installed by the clients on entire projects, and we stay there from the very beginning, which is entitlement, blue topping, all the way through the end. And when there's claims on on that particular project, mechanics liens from subcontractors, bond issues, we handle all of that. Very interesting. And let's talk a little bit about what you know. What's the action? What are the what are lawsuits typically about? It's a great question. There's right now, at least in the last couple of years. Why don't I give you the answer to that, which is what mm-hmm. the what the current lawsuits are about in the construction space. So typically we see three things. First, we see change order issues. And that's, we can talk a lot about that, but change order issues relate primarily to the increased material costs that we've Mm -hmm. seen ever since 2020, as well as the increase in labor costs because there's labor shortages. So how this typically plays out is a subcontractor will have bid on a lump sum job in say 2020 or 2019 and that price was significantly lower and now when the project is actually being completed they're working on and procuring those materials two years later when they're twice as much and so the subcontractor is submitting change orders and it gets into a fight where the general contractor comes in and says no you submitted a lump sum job two years ago it's just too bad that you didn't purchase the material at the beginning. You, instead, you waited until the prices got too high. So we get a lot of those fights. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, we also get a significant amount of fights, particularly today, on mechanics liens. And subcontractors and general contractors use mechanics liens as a leverage tool to get leverage over owners. Owners know that if they have mechanics liens, they have problems with sometimes their insurance with the lender and in selling. So these subcontractors, I'm seeing a significant increase in mechanics liens or at least threatened mechanics liens. And then the third issue is not really a substantive issue, but I would say it's a change in the procedural strategy. It used to be that a couple years ago, being in trial was advantageous in state court. But Mm -hmm. now that's not the case anymore. A lot of the court cases are way backed up. I just had a case a couple days ago. I was at a CMC before Judge, and he gave me a trial date in 2025, which is, that's an awfully long time for clients to be waiting. So now we're seeing a transition back to arbitration as a faster forum for dispute resolution. So we can talk about that too. Well, those are three really interesting things. And yeah, let's dig into each of them. So let's start with with change orders. How does it 
tend to end. So on the one hand, both sides seem to have a logical point, right? That, that we contracted you for $10. And at the time you knew your materials were five and now your materials are 15. And neither side is kind of genuinely at fault, but contractually, clearly one has an advantage over the other. How, how does that wind up getting resolved? Usually very messy. Let's start from the beginning how we usually get here. So we can talk and tell your listeners a little bit about how to avoid this from happening in the first place. So typically, the reason that we get into these kind of fights is because the contracts in the very beginning do not have the right procedures for how to deal with a change order. Instead, what most contracts say is something like Section 7 change order, subcontractor will submit a change order in writing to the owner to be approved by the architect and the owner. And it's that's sort of how vanilla it is. There's really mm -hmm. no other procedure about what to do in this exact situation we're describing. The best possible thing that you can do to handle these change order issues is preventative. It's upfront and it's handled in the contract. So let's say that this occurred during a, a bad contract like this. What typically happens is the change order is given to the architect or the owner, this is a typical AIA contract. Mm -hmm. And that change order is denied by the owner. And then fight ensues where the contractor, or in the case of a sub GC issue, where that contractor is going to go and stop work on the job. That's usually mm -hmm. the first thing they do, right? They pause, mm -hmm. they slow walk their efforts, and that increases the tension on the two parties and makes it even worse. So now the project's getting delayed, the owner's complaining about increased carrying costs, the contractor is upset because they didn't get their change order approved. It's all a huge problem. The best possible way to resolve this stuff is actually the public workspaces do it right at least once. And this is where, and this is where they do it right. What you should have in your contract is some kind of immediate dispute resolution method when change orders arise. So if there's a change order issue, somebody's got to call the balls and strikes on that. So you need somebody, whether you appoint the architect to do it, oftentimes because the architect is fairly neutral, or you appoint some kind of immediate arbitration with jams or a DRB or something like that. You need to get those issues resolved right away and not wait till litigation. That sounds like a broader parable for how to think about disputes generally in construction, right? Because every minute that the, that the job isn't moving forward, it's costing kind of everybody money, but obviously the owner the most. So it, it sounds like you're saying a number of things that we can unpack in here. And one of them is, as you're thinking about contract you're about to sign, it's worth aiming out what might happen and making sure that you've thought of those contingencies. I mean, my own experience in, in contracts with a good lawyer, for sure, is they'll come up with contingencies I hadn't thought of and said, well, you got to make sure this is covered and you got to make sure that is covered. As opposed to most people are saying, I want to make sure that the things in front of me are covered and the cost and how I'm going to invoice. But you know, people don't think hard enough about what could go wrong. And I think that's where a lot of times a lawyer steps in and is, is an advisor as, as, as anything else, right? Is we've seen these things go wrong in the past. Let's make sure we've laid out what to do when they, when that happens. Is that how you look at it? 
That's absolutely right. And, and in fact, I'm going to double down on it. You know, my job is I'm a trial lawyer, but ultimately mm -hmm. what I do is I provide clients advice and experience from trying cases to juries, to arbitrators, to judges. So when I am in this situation, I'm telling you from experiences from losses and right. wins, but I, I'm, I'm telling you what happens when, when two clients GC and the owner, the GC and the subcontractor, when those two are not thinking about the project first and they're thinking about bruised egos or, <laughs> or I know it's, it's true. I, it's very true. I, I've been on, I, I've been on huge projects, billion dollar projects, public works projects where that is the problem with the job. <laughs> Is it's not actually a lack of skill or a lack of intelligence on the team or even the team makeup. It's really just comes down to people right. and people are, in, you know, they're not infallible. So sometimes they make decisions that are not in the best nature for the project and the project suffers and people just are not thinking project first. That's an interesting one. And you just made me think of another point here. And I'd love your thoughts on this, that when you're in a dispute, each side is looking for leverage. And it turns out that a contract and legal means as expensive as they might feel when you're signing invoices are, are the least expensive way to generate leverage. Because every other way means you're stopping something. You've got people sitting around. You know, you're not ordering things. You're, the business is generally not moving forward. So it feels like one of the things you're also avoiding is people using non-legal, non-discussion-based means to create leverage, like stopping work or you know, refusing to do this or whatever it might be. And that's got to be one of the things that makes it messy, right? Is by the time you're coming in and people have done all these things to create leverage, it's such a tangle of who owes who what and who has destroyed value how that you spend a lot of time untangling it. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And what you're describing is what we in the law call self-help. And self-help <laughs> self -help is not okay. I mean, that's not how professionals should be acting, but it, it happens to be the case that people stop work, they slow walk work, they don't have workers show up. They use these self-help leverage tools to attack each other. And it's very interesting to me, you know, typically it, it's not worth it to go to trial in most cases. There are some cases it is, and you should go to trial on them. But in most cases, it's not. And so I use my experience to talk to the opposing side and let mm -hmm. them and let them know, hey, look, you guys have a hundred thousand dollar mechanics lane. Do you really want to go down this road where we're going to litigate and both of us are going to pay more than a hundred thousand dollars on your claim? It just doesn't mm -hmm. make economical sense. Let's figure this out. And it's it's surprising how often I receive a no to that because people are posturing it's and and then in the end you know I do take him to trial like the one I did in July and that guy I know for sure that he paid more on that trial for his attorney's fees than he ultimately had to pay my client so it's just if I could offer one you know you mentioned a parable or you know if I could offer one piece of general advice for all the parables it would be really think before you get yourself involved in these kind of scenarios where you're going for self-help instead of trying to work with the other side on a project to be project first. Well, I wonder a little bit if people have this feeling that because they've seen it in a movie or, you know, they talked about it over beers with somebody that I want to make an example. I want it to be known that I'm 
I'm going to fight and you can't mess around with me. And I think the problem is that's not the reputation you get. A, nobody ever hears about it. Or if they do, they're like, this person's a pain in the neck to do business with. What do you think of that? You know, I don't, I don't know if it's like we were talking about before. I think there is some kind of, there are personal animus issues sometimes on projects. Construction is difficult, right? You've been yeah. to many, many sites. You're extremely experienced. And you you know how difficult it is, especially for the field guys, for the superintendents on the job, all getting a lot of pressure from each other, from other subs, from time delays, from mm. COVID. I mean, it's understandable why we encounter these issues. But in the end, ultimately, like I said before, project first has to be the thing on everybody's mind. Because if we can get the project completed, you're going to lose the irateness of the owner. If you do that kind of self-help stuff, hmm. it makes the owner very difficult to deal with because they're starting to lose confidence in you as a sub or as a GC. They're going to have to replace you for more. Now they're in sunk cost mode, right? They're replacing right. you. They've got delay damages. They have carrying costs. I mean, could you imagine how difficult it is for my owners, for example, right now in this interest rate environment when they had a construction loan at 2 or 3% and then because of delays, instead of getting their permanent financing at 2 or 3%, now they're looking at 8%. So how are they going to go to their investors and tell them, I'm going to get you that 15% IRR that I told you about two years ago? They can't. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a tough very position. difficult. It is. Yeah. It is. How, how interesting. Well, so we took the change order bullet point and kind of had a lot of fun with it. Talk a little bit about mechanics liens, though, how you're seeing that, you know, more than, well, either more than was true before or, or you know, just ongoing. Sure. So as we were talking about before, you know, all of these things have a general theme to them, which is projects are starting to slow down. There's, there's more disputes on projects because the money is tighter and the mm -hmm. money is more expensive. So when we think of that, we, we just need to have that theme in our mind when we're thinking about these issues and why they're happening more. So the reason mechanics liens are happening more is two years ago, owners would approve change orders at a higher rate than they do now. And that's simply because they had more money and cheaper mm -hmm. money mm -hmm. and they had more time. Now, because change orders are not getting approved or differing site condition change orders are not getting approved as much by owners, it makes the subcontractors have difficulty with cash flow. And I wanna stop for a second and talk about this because in the construction field, as you know, Cash flow is absolutely king. It's a king in everything, but in the construction industry, it absolutely matters because some of these projects require material and labor, machinery that subs and GCs are outlaying, and they've got retention on the back end, right? That's being held from them. So in the end, they're dealing with a very small profit margin, a very thin slice. And if they have a big change order that they can't get approved by the owner, now they're writing it negative or they're writing it zero. So they are feeling a lot of internal pressure to do something. So what's the only thing they can do? The only thing they can do is put a lien on the job. And hopefully that will apply some leverage to get the owner in. But like we talked about, 
just right. a little bit ago. That's not going to happen. The owners aren't doing that any, that stuff anymore. So now what I'm seeing is, and this is happening quite a bit. I'm thinking of a project I'm dealing with right now where subcontractors are going so far as to put mechanics liens on jobs for material they have not even delivered to the site. Now that's absolutely critical in California. And it's, it's critical in a lot of other states too that have this rule. In California, the material's got to be on the project site to get a mechanics lien, period. That's the law. And a lot of these subs are now just taking liberties with that. Maybe if it's in their warehouse, maybe if it's not even manufactured. I had a case where a cabinet company didn't even build the cabinets yet, and they put a mechanics lien on my owner's property simply because he wouldn't approve a change order. That's self-help type stuff, and you can't do that. The cabinets aren't even prepared. They're not on the site. They're not even built. So what we're seeing now is owners are taking the reins and they are filing what we call an 8480 motion, which is for what happens when there's a, the 90 days is up on the mechanics lien. You file that kind of petition. And we're also seeing a lot more 765 petitions, which are petitions like the one I just told you about with the cabinets, where it's clearly false that the cabinets, they don't exist. And yet the subcontractor put them on and now we've got to get them off. So now owners are having to do that. They're spending more in legal fees. And it further and further divides the parties and makes settlement difficult. Because once you start expending all these costs, right. the owner's seeing on their, their legal budget and their legal budget's running out. They've got no contingency left. They're fighting all these liens. Now they're going to dig in, which is going to make settlement even more difficult. So you can see how this kind of it's one time one of my mentors called the self-licking ice cream cone. It just kind of goes around in circles and it makes it worse and worse and worse and worse until all the ice cream's gone and everybody loses. So that's that's what we're seeing right now is that kind of procedure. Yeah. And I mean, you can see how the, the economic pressures snowball and like the impact of, of macroeconomic trends, how it filters down into how people behave is so fascinating and unfortunate sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. And one more thing on the mechanics lane, just since we're talking about it, you know, the, the other issue with the liens being put on the project is, again, you're not allowing the owner any kind of way to solve this dispute with you. You are, you are applying to the owner maximum pressure with his lender, right? He's going to get letters from his lender. He's going to get letters from the insurance company. And again, it, it's going to make it so the project is not going to get done, which then stacks the damages up on the delay even more. It just makes it terrible for both sides. And that speaks to the third bullet you brought up in the very beginning, which is people choosing to arbitrate instead of litigate. And, and the first reason you said that that was true is that, is that it just takes a year or two years, and it, depending on, I guess, where you are, to even get to court. But you know, talk a little bit about how you're seeing that trend impact. I mean, hopefully some of it also is people saying, look, this is the fifth time I've gone to court and it's destroying relationships. Are you seeing that or is it really just about time? No, it's primarily about time. You know, I, I wish I could say that people are becoming more aware and that they want to get projects resolved, but that's not actually the case. I think what's happening is there's a transition away from court litigation, court trial. One, because I think a lot of even my clients have lost faith in the jury system. It's, you know, it's very difficult to explain what you and I are talking about, even at an elementary level, to jurors. 
right? You, when you're talking about mechanics liens, we're going to talk about specifications later, project schedules, project accounting. This is very niche stuff that you have to be in for a long time to understand even what we're talking about. So that's one reason why we're seeing more construction cases go to arbitration. Dis, no credibility with the jurors. The second reason that we're seeing it is what we talked about earlier. It's about the timing. You know, now it's taking two, three, and that's just the first trial date I got, right? 2025, first trial date. You never go on your first trial date. <laughs> You're going to go on like your third or fourth one. So that's going to get pushed even more. So I've got two, three years to get to that case. By then, the project's going to be completely done. Right. And the owner's not going to have the money that he wants from that particular case. The opponent is not going to get their mechanics lien foreclosed on for three years. So now, you know, they're waiting too for that money that they supposedly are supposed to get. So on both sides, it's it's a bad deal to be going to court right now with how backed up they are. So we've been writing in arbitration provisions in all of our most recent contracts to get these things before sophisticated construction judges who have 30, 40 years of dealing with construction cases and are experts in this stuff and, and can handle it in a faster, more efficient way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and it's again, it's funny how macroeconomic trends, and in this case, not so much a macroeconomic trend as I guess you'd say a judicial trend of things getting backed up has an implication. So we've talked about change orders. We've talked about liens. You just mentioned specifications. So I'm going to take the bait. How have you seen specifications have an impact and, and, and drive lawsuits or conflicts? Specifications and specification-related issues are globally involved in almost every single project I've ever been on. And let's kind of take a hypothetical here. Let's let's pretend we're on a project, we're on a 100-unit apartment building, it's got a subterranean garage, it's got insulated glass units, it's got concrete CMU block walls, it's got lots of different trades going on with it. But we show up on the job and we see what's going on and we've got the superintendent, we'll call him Superintendent Sam, and then mm -hmm. we've got all his laborers there. The problem is going to happen at Superintendent Sam's level as it happens with the specifications. So Superintendent Sam, he's going to have subcontractors come up to him and ask, where is this thing supposed to go? What about this thing? Well, let's look at the plans. Let's look at the specifications. And that right there is where you get most of the issues because most contractors don't have a way of immediately calling up specifications and plans that have been changed. Oftentimes you'll see people going through revision number six. No, wait, wait, wait. No, Bob, actually revision number seven. Remember when we changed that at the superintendent meeting on Wednesday? Oh yeah, I wrote that on the note, but I don't really know where that note is. What did that subcontractor say again? I mean, you can imagine this is on a small job. Imagine right. how this happens on public works jobs where they've got RFIs in the thousands, right? And people are making changes and pointing out issues and you're not catching all that stuff. And you're certainly not updating it in the field. So the field specs and the field plans that people are, are going to rely on, that they're going to be absolutely right every single day, right? They're going to be updated every single day. That right there is the reason that we have a lot of problems on change orders and a lot of problems with delay is what I just described, that hypothetical. What are some examples from your own experience of people getting the spec wrong? What, what have they missed or, or overlooked? Sure. 
So let's, I won't mention any client names, but we'll talk about a public works project. It's a billion dollar public works project. And it had in it specifications for CIDH piles, which are these cast and drill holes. They're, they're those big things, you know, you see on the freeway and they're made out of concrete and they're cylindrical and you put them yep. into the ground. Yeah. The specifications on this particular project identified these CIDH piles. This is a design build job, by the way. Mm -hmm. the, for these CIDH piles to be in a non-California seismic compliant way. And somehow, some way, despite people calling it out on RFIs and sometimes writing down some notes and putting a sticky on it and calling the designer to get it changed and somebody loses the sticky, they got it built that way, hmm. non-compliant with seismic, which means that the CIDH piles, these things are like 50 feet tall, right? I mean, they're, right. These, they're, these are millions of dollars to, to drill one of these and to install one of these. It didn't have enough rebar. So when they were placed in, they finally figured it out. At the last possible second, the whole thing's already in. And now they go to the inspector through California DOT and the inspector says, whoa, 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 let's look at the specifications for this. Wait a minute, the plans, the specs, this is all wrong. These are non-compliant with California seismic rules. There should be twice as much rebar in here. Now you've got a rework problem, right? You've got millions of dollars sitting out there that's totally useless and can't be approved. And you've got the contractor who's gonna, who's thinking, okay, I'm going to need a couple extra million from this. I'm going to have to go to the owner and I'm going to have to make a change order. Now, how am I going to make a change order when whose fault is it? I don't know. Is it the designer's fault? Is it the structural guy? Is it the guy who wrote the post-it down but forgot to stick it hard enough? He didn't put the tape on there. You know, maybe he didn't take it over to the design engineer and the design engineer forgot because they got so much stuff going on and they're being acquired by some other large company and they, all the personnel is moving. I mean, you can imagine in these big projects how this happens. And it happens way more than you think it does. That's insane. Well, obviously it, it, it's 3M's fault because the sticky didn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm sure somebody would try to make that case. Well, I'd like to shift gears real quick and talk a little bit about what makes you and, and Hennig Law amazing. Talk a little bit about the company and the fact that you've been at this a long time. I'd love to just understand how, I, we talked about it a little before, but I'd love to hear more about your career and what got you to where you are and, and Hennig Law more generally. Yeah, so I was a former big law guy. I was with Manat Phelps and Phillips and then later Hanson Bridget, which at the time was the number one construction firm in California. And my partner, Scott Hennig, who's the lead of our firm, he approached me and said, you know what? I think we've got a great platform idea here, which is a boutique idea. Mm -hmm. We're going to separate out. We don't need to have an association with an employment law practice and a family law practice and trust estates. No, we're going to focus exclusively on construction only. That's all we're going to do. It's going to be boutique, high level, bet the company cases, trials. And so that's what I did is I went with him and we tried several cases together in the eight nine figures even and these cases they teach you so much because they are these trials are three four months long right i mean this is this is not just a couple of days this is a lot of work with a lot of witnesses and a lot on the line and 
ultimately that's the service we provide, both in an advisory capacity and in the trial capacity. On the advisory side, our typical value proposition to the clients is we've been through these trials before. Learn from our losses, learn from our wins, and we will tell you what not to do on your projects. Don't do this, do this instead. Don't do this, write your contract like this instead. And we can go through and give them examples, real life examples, where we talk to jurors at the end of cases and we learned why that provision that the corporate lawyer says is okay is not actually a good provision because a jury doesn't understand it or a judge doesn't understand it or that particular provision should be flipped around and applied instead of the general contractor instead of the owner. I mean, there's a whole host of things that we can show with personal experience instead of just theorizing about it. And then on the litigation piece, on the actual trial work, largely the opponents who don't want to work with us. I I think of myself, even though I am a trial lawyer, I think of myself as very easygoing, very easy to deal with. And for some odd reason, when I approach people at the outset of projects with reasonable proposals, they don't take it. And they should, because ultimately, like we talked about before, that's going to be the best deal they're ever going to get. This is really interesting. And I love your point a moment ago about how it might look like this is the best way to do something, but the practical reality, if this faces the true test of somebody either in a jury or in a, an arbitration situation, here's how it's really going to go, because they're not going to understand you or they're going to construe it this way or you know whatever the case may be. It's so interesting in an industry that is, is really predicated on the practical reality on the ground. I mean, that's a lot of what construction is about, is solving problems in, in a messy reality that what you're doing is is kind of analogous in that you're advising people that, look, in theory, this may look cleaner the way you're being told, but really what's going to happen is a group of people that barely understand some of the terms and they definitely don't understand the meaning and implication in context are going to have no idea what you're talking about. And they're actually going to see it like this. Really interesting. That's precisely right. You hit it right on. Well, Garrett, this has been great. I, I really loved hearing. I mean, I learned so much about how things are are going in the industry and, and some of the implications. If people want to reach out to you, how do they reach you? Well, that's easy. They can just email me. It's Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot Mott, M-O-T-T at Hennig, that's H-E-N-N-I-G-H law.com. Fantastic. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. Well, Garrett, thank you for being on the podcast. Of course. No, thank you, Hugh. This is great. 